You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. We've been going really through this entire year through the book of Romans, and uh, we are up to Romans chapter 11. And in chapters 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul deals with uh, the issue of Jews and Gentiles, both within the church and in the area of salvation. And as I as we go into this particular passage today, and we look at that, I, I think it's important that we kind of remind ourselves of a couple of things. One, that Paul is talking about both nations and individuals. And so sometimes that can be confusing because he'll say, you know, the nation of Israel is going to be saved. And yet then later he'll say, well, not everybody, uh, not all the Jews are going to be saved, but it's only through faith, just like with the Gentiles. And then he'll talk about Gentiles and and that they're rejected. But of course, uh, today we're going to talk about how they can be grafted in uh, as, as individuals. And then the other thing to remember, too, is that Paul is writing to the first century church in the city of Rome. Because our other temptation, as we look at some of these passages, is to think about us. Now, I know that maybe this doesn't happen with any of you, but sometimes the most important person that I'm concerned about is me. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I'm concerned about you too. Um, you ever, have you ever thought about that? Like if, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Maybe you're going to go to an event. Maybe it's kind of an unusual social setting. And so you're worried about who's going to be there, who you're going to talk to, what you're going to wear. Maybe if you're a student, it's like the first day of school. You know, some of you, like you already have the outfit you're going to wear that first day of school. Uh, for some of you, you're going to wear whatever you were, you know, when you went to bed the night before the first day of school. But you go into one of those awkward social settings and you're so worried about so many things. And then you realize nobody else is really paying attention to you. No one is nearly as concerned about you as you are. Now I say that because sometimes when we read Scripture, we, we want to make application for us, and that, that is appropriate. But we also think it was written just for us. And what does this passage that we're looking at today have to say to American Christians? But it wasn't written to American Christians. It was written to Roman Christians who were under the Caesar Nero at the time, and there is application for us, but it may not be about us. And I know that's hard for some of us to think, but I want us to have that in mind because it's so easy for us as we look at these passages and he's talking about nations for us to think, well, that's where America is right now. That's what Paul meant. There might be application to that, but that's not who Paul was writing to. Does that make sense? 
So I just offended some of you. Some of you are like, wait a second. It's not all about America. Not in these first verses. Romans chapter 11, in verse number 11, Paul begins the way he begins many of these sections, by asking and answering a question. He, he asks these rhetorical questions, and he says in verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Everybody knows what a rhetorical question is, right? Good, good. I was waiting for somebody to go, what? Or yes, we know. But you guys, all right, that was good. I should just move on. You guys got it all down. I say then, if they stumbled that they should fall, certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, it's interesting what he says here. He says, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. And then he says, through their fall. And when I first read that, I thought, wait a second. If they didn't fall, then why are we talking about when they fall? But really, the question that he's asking is dealing with the idea of a permanent failure. And there's no doubt, as Paul has already talked about, that as salvation extended to the Gentiles, the Jews were, were set aside. There were still Jewish believers, but as a whole, the nation of Israel had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and so there were consequences for that. But what Paul is saying here is, while they have fallen, it is not a permanent failure. And so he says, is this a permanent failure? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And so Paul asks this question and he answers it. He says, listen, the rejection of the nation of Israel of Jesus Christ is not a permanent failure. But then he says in the second half of verse 11, he says, he, he uses an interesting phrase. He says, provoking them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their foolishness, or their fullness, I'm, excuse me, it, what an interesting phrase that he uses here. When he says, part of the reason that salvation has come to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, is to provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy. Now, you wouldn't think that that is necessarily a good thing. That doesn't seem like it would be a good thing. If I said, hey, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to provoke someone to jealousy. That, that doesn't sound good. But of course, the idea is to bring them to salvation. That the Jews had a special place, a special position. They have a special position as God's chosen people. And 
over and over in Scripture, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, we're going to see where Jesus himself says, salvation is of the Jews. But then salvation begins to come to the Gentiles. And as we've talked about before, historically in the church at Rome, it started like most churches, probably from believers, maybe Jews and Gentiles, but predominantly Jews, coming from Jerusalem where they worshiped, heard about Jesus, accepted him as the Messiah, went back to their home in Rome, and began a church. But then, because of persecution, all the Jews were expelled from Rome. So the only people left in the church at Rome as it began to grow and start up was Gentiles. Now Jews are back in Rome. We know historically from the book of Acts that uh, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, two Jews that at, at one point ministered with Paul, were now back at the church in Rome. But there's this conflict, this it, it, it kind of threw off the balance of power. And Paul said, God uses salvation in the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to salvation, to, through, to jealousy. He uses the word jealousy. What I would like to submit to you is this, that God uses people for examples, both good and bad. I can tell you that in my life, I have seen examples of how people handled certain situations. And in some cases I went, man, if I'm ever faced with a similar situation, I wanna do it just like that. And in some situations I've gone, I wanna do it exactly the opposite of that. You know what I'm talking about? That God uses us as examples. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number one says this. Moreover, brethren, I do, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul writing to the church at Corinth is talking about Old Testament history here and, and the, 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 the lineage that it has for us. All were uh, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So he's talking about the nation of Israel come out of slavery in Egypt, and here when they wandered in the wilderness, he's referencing this. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all of these things happened to them as examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. So Paul's he, he relates all these Old Testament stories. He says, remember when they wandered in the wilderness because they didn't believe? Remember when their, their rebellion caused God to send the serpents and them to die? And, and all of these things that happened, he said, these are our examples. 
That's one of the things I love about Scripture is it gives us instruction, but also the Bible is full of stories. And those stories are, some of them are inspirational to us, some of them are warnings to us, but they're all given to us as examples. I believe God uses examples in our world today. I mean, when, when you, you know, when you deal with a struggle, people are watching you. One of the, one of the great benefits of being a pastor is that sometimes people watch the way you live your life. Like, it's, it's great. Like, it, if, if I get up here and I preach against anger, and then I go outside and I lose my temper, people tend to get a little, you know, irritated by that. They're like, well, he can preach it, but he can't walk it. I should preach and teach the same things that I live. Amen? Do I always? know? But I try. But if I consistently spoke about something and then had a lifestyle that was different from that, you would say, well, he's not worth listening to. Because our example is important. And I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, you know, God uses people and examples in a lot of ways. Man, I've thought about people that I know that have been diagnosed with disease and, and gone through physical struggles, and, and through that, their, their strength and their, their reliance on God, their faith has been demonstrated in a powerful way. And that's inspirational, and it's motivational to us. It's a tremendous example. I thought, you know, I'd rather be like the example of how to handle great blessing. You know what I mean? Like, like, Lord, just bless me like you did Solomon, but I'll try to do it a little better, you know? I mean, I just want to be that kind of an example to people. There's probably a reason that God limits our blessing sometimes because we wouldn't be the type of example we need to be. But God says here that he, that part of the process was that as, as Jews would see God begin to work among the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit begin to come and, and he move in a powerful way that some of the Jews would be provoked and they would see that and they would recognize they too needed to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They too needed, and even through that jealousy, would be provoked. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, we read that long passage about how they were examples. But Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13, and says this. After he says, these people are our examples, he says, therefore... Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now I made a joke about being, you know, being an example of blessing. But I'll tell you what, we 
are a people who are blessed and God does bless us. And how we handle that should be an example to others. It might not always be, but we should think about that. Not just how we handle difficulties, but how we handle good things. Are we grateful to God? Are we thankful in the way that we should be? Are we humble or do we take the blessings of God in our life and through those things, our pride is built up? That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11 and verse 13. He says, for I speak to you Gentiles. See, he says first, he says, listen, the, the falling away is not permanent and God is gonna provoke Jews to jealousy because of the salvation of Gentiles, the blessing of Gentiles. And then he says in verse 13, I want to speak to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke the jealousy, those who are my flesh, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Here's what I was thinking of this week as I read this passage and began to kind of drill down, and especially that, that phrase, provoke to jealousy. I thought, as followers of Jesus, do we provoke people to jealousy in, a, in the right way? Do people see the way in which we live our lives? Do they see the way in which we handle both blessings and difficulties? And they see something different in, in the way we conduct ourselves? First Peter chapter three and verse number 15 says this, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be a, re, re, be, the, 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 goodness. And that's why, <clears throat> Always be ready, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Here's what he says. Be ready to give a defense for what? The hope that is in you. That's what's going to provoke people to jealousy. Do we live our lives where we are showing the hope of Jesus Christ in the way that we conduct ourselves? I'll just be honest with you. I think a lot of times we don't. How you doing? Hey, how's it going, man? Well, I'm busy. I'm tired. I'm depressed. I'm frustrated, whatever. That's not a person who has the hope within us. Now, I'm not saying you can't be those things. I'm not saying that we don't feel those things sometimes. But listen, if we are people who Jesus Christ who God has extended his grace to us through Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. Our eternal destiny is secure. He is always with us. He will never leave us. Shouldn't that hope within us be shown to other people? Some of you never have to give an answer for the hope that is in you because you never let it show. We should be people who provoke, one, provoke others to jealousy. John said this, John 15, 35. Excuse me, Jesus said this. He said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. You want to know how people are going to know you're followers of me? Put a fish on your car. That's not what he said. Wear a t-shirt 
with a surfer and a Bible verse about walking on water. Get a tattoo of the right Bible verse. I'm not making fun of any of those things, but that's not how people know you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus said, my followers love one another. I think church ought to be a place where people come and they look around and they see a group of people acting different than any other gathering of people anywhere else because there is a love for one another. Not because the temperature's just right and the chairs are comfortable and donuts and coffee are ready when you walk in. I love all of those things too. But you can get those things at a lot of different meetings. But when people come in, they ought to be provoked. They ought to wonder what is going on here that old and young and, and, and people from various backgrounds would come together and care for one another with the, with, the, with the love of Jesus Christ. This is what God has called us to do. And he gives a warning to the Gentiles. He says, listen, God rejected the nation of Israel. He's given us salvation, but God forbid that we would be prideful in that. He's going to talk about that more as we continue in verse number 16. He says in Romans 11 and verse 16, for if the first fruit is holy and the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of the unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? That is a lot of talk about branches and grafting in trees. Let's break it down a little bit. He starts in verse 16. He gives us two analogies. One analogy he doesn't talk about at all, and the other he runs with quite a bit. He says in verse 16, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. When I read that, I was like, what? Fruit and lumps? What's he talking about? But that word first fruit, of course, is a reference to offerings that were given. In Numbers, there's specifically, uh, Numbers chapter 15, there's specifically the idea of a heave offering. And it's where they would take uh, the, the, the grain 
that they would that they would harvest they would grind it they would make meal from it and then they would cut out the first fruits off of the lump of dough now we don't bake a lot of bread in my house um but i am familiar intimately familiar with cookie dough i'm a huge huge fan and I think if you're baking cookies, you ought to just plan on a certain amount of the first fruits, amen, being eaten before the cookie dough is baked. Now, you might say, preacher, I think that could be unhealthy, and you might get sick from that. Listen, I'm not advocating anything. If you get food poisoning, that's on you. But in my experience, if I lay hands on it and pray over it, God has blessed me. You do what you want. But when I was a little kid, my mom would make cookies. And I would come by. And, and you know, you know the oven's on and she's in there mixing. And you have to time it just right. If you come in too early, the dough's not ready and then she wants to put you to work. And so you want to kind of stay in your room. If you're too late, then all the cookies are already in the oven and that's still good. You get fresh cookies out of the oven, but you don't get any of the dough. So you want to time it just right. When you hear the chocolate chips go into the bowl, what you doing, Mom? Oh, you need help stirring the chocolate chips into the cookie dough? That's the type of thing I want to help with. Or she would make brownies, and you'd hear the little mixer going, and you want to come in and get the beater. I don't know what it is about licking that beater. That was like the best thing in the world. Some of you are looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Do you take the thing that mixes the brownie mix and then wash it? That's sacrilege. <laughs> Pull that thing out. Lick it up, man. That's a good time. <laughs> I'm just telling you. But they'd make, a, they'd make a big lump of dough. And they'd take part of that out. And that would be an offering to God. And so Paul here says, if the offering is holy, isn't the whole lump holy? And he kind of leaves that analogy, but he makes a similar one when he says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. If the, if the trunk of the tree is good, the branches are going to be good. And then he starts talking about grafting and blessing. He says, some of the branches in verse 17 were broken off. And you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them. And with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. See, Gentile Christians were, were grafted in through salvation. And what he describes, and he'll say later in this passage that we've already read, he says this is an unnatural thing. See, to the first century church, Olive trees were the most common um, fruit tree that was cultivated. And so people, people would recognize olive trees. And they might take a cultivated tree and branches and 
grafted in to a wild olive tree that was already growing and strong, and then they could get good olives off of that. But they typically would not take a wild olive branch and graft it into a, a tree already in an orchard producing really good fruit because you never know what you're going to get. Like, have you ever noticed that the apples you get at the store are, are just a little bit better than like the crab apples that grow in your backyard? They are in my house. I mean, the crab apples are nice, but, you know, when you go to the store, every one of those apples is perfect. Well, those things are cultivated, right? I mean, farmers and people, uh, scientists, I mean, there's whole teams of people working to get the best apples they can, growing in the orchards and getting them to the store. And so you wouldn't, you know, break off a wild apple tree that was kind of haphazard and graft it into that. And yet that's what he says. He says the wild olive tree, the wild olive branches have been grafted in. That's the Gentiles. But he said, we need to be, we need to be thankful for that. We enjoy spiritual blessings through the Jews. Jesus said in John 4, chapter 4, he, he's talking to the woman at the well. And she was a Samaritan woman and they worshiped up on the hill. And so she tries to, she recognizes that Jesus is a teacher. And so she says, listen, I got a question. And the question she asks is like the major controversial question between the Samaritans and the Jews. She says, we worship up on this hill, but you guys say you should only worship in the temple, which is right. Well, first of all, Jesus was a Jew. And so he's going to say worship in the temple. Second of all, that was the right answer. Jesus said, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. And then he says this, for salvation is of the Jews. It's interesting, and I don't, like I've never sensed that this is a problem, but I'll just say, I know it's a problem in certain areas of our society. This idea, even amongst Christians, that, that they begin to be sort of, uh, anim have animosity towards Jewish people. You recognize that pretty much all of our New Testament was written by Jews, right? Like what we preach and teach, all of Jesus' apostles were Jews. I understand Luke, there might be some controversy there or some question, but most all of it's written by Jews. Jesus, the one we put our faith and trust in, a Jew. So we shouldn't, be against the Jews. We shouldn't have animosity towards the Jews. We should be thankful that God has worked through the Jewish people to provide for us our salvation through Jesus Christ. Salvation is of the Jews. But God has grafted us in. And then he says, he says, we might brag about it. We might say, well, God broke off branches so that he could make a place for me to be grafted in. He said, yes, they were broken off for unbelief and we were grafted in through faith, but that doesn't mean we can't be broken off. Now, I don't believe that this is a, a warning that we can lose our salvation. 
But it is important that we think about what he calls the severity and goodness of God. Therefore, consider verse 22, the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. I want to close this morning by thinking about this thought. We've been talking about God's grace and over and over and over in Romans, he talks about the grace of God. And I said last week, and I made a point of it, that not only do we receive salvation by God's grace, but we walk in God's grace. So stick with me here for a moment. Salvation is by grace alone, right? We can't earn it. We can't make God give it to us. We can't we, do, we can't do anything. God does everything. Grace comes to us. That's how we are saved. We, the Bible says, are dead in our trespasses and sins, but we're made alive through God's grace. And his grace is extended through Jesus Christ. So we receive it, we put our faith in Jesus, but he does all of the work. That's how we get a relationship with God and that's how we walk in a relationship with God. It's by God's grace. In other words, I don't have to keep a set of rules so that God will keep me saved. I don't have to keep a set of rules so that I can keep God's judgment at bay or his blessings coming. I serve God out of a grateful heart. I serve God. I, I, I try to obey his commandments because I trust him. I trust him for my salvation and I trust him for how to live my life. Even sometimes when I don't understand it. If God says do it, I want to do it because I know he has my best interest at heart. I know he's wiser than I am. I know he can see things that I can't see. And so I want to follow him. I want to live in a way that is pleasing to God, but not not because I'm trying to get God's favor because of the grace that he's extended to me. But that doesn't mean we should be flippant about how we live. It doesn't mean we should be flippant about sin. Listen, God's grace extended to us should motivate us to try to live a holy and righteous life before God. It should motivate us that when we do sin, to repent of that. It should motivate us to try to to try to learn more of God and follow him more and walk in greater faith with him. And we shouldn't be flippant about it. Titus chapter three and verse eight says this, this is a faithful saying and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Not, again, not because, you know, we've got to keep God's favor. God's already given us his favor. God loved us when we were separated from him. He's brought us to himself. But we should be careful to maintain good works. We should be careful to do the things that we need to do because of the grace that we've been given. Because of how much God has loved us. Ephesians chapter four, 
verses one and two. I want to close with this this morning. Paul says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you or beg you to walk worthy of the calling with, with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. God has grafted us in to, to his family, to his people. God has taken us when we were far from him. He has brought us to himself. That should, that should motivate us. That should cause us to live a life that, that is pleasing to God. We should naturally be people who are provoking others with the love that we have for others, with the hope that is in us. And I'm not talking about being fake. I recognize that difficulties come. But even as we endure difficulties, we ought to be examples provoking one another. We ought to handle struggles in our life differently than those who are outside of Jesus Christ. We ought to handle blessings in our life differently than those who are outside of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we should be a testimony to him. We should be a testimony to those who are around us of him. Are you living a life that is provoking others to see Jesus? That is causing others to want to be more like him? Listen, we live in a world where the church doesn't always have a great reputation. I recognize that. Sometimes I'm in different situations and people are like, and what do you do for a living? And I'm like, well, I pastor a church. And people are like, oh. Sometimes that reputation's well-earned. Maybe not by me, but by other pastors. Hopefully not by me. God, let me pray and work to not have me contribute to that reputation. But that reputation is often well-earned. And sometimes the church has that reputation too. You might say, well, I go to church or I'm a Christian. And people go, oh, well, I know how Christians are. You know what? Change what they think about Christians as they get to know you. That's all we can do. I mean, we could argue about it. We could all make signs and have a protest and say, no, really, we love you. But you know what's going to be more effective? Loving people. We could hire a PR firm and try to change, you know, the, the reputation and the image of our church. Or you know what we could do? We could begin to love people right here in Lakewood, starting with one another in a way that people would go, you know, those Christians, I know they have a bad reputation, but that church seems to love people. That church seems to do things a little bit differently. And it starts with each and every one of us. Let us be men and women who provoke other people when they see us love and they see the hope that is in us. Dear God, Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. I thank you for your word that is an encouragement, that is a motivation to us. God, help us to be examples. Examples of Men and women, not perfect, we know, God, but men and women who seek to follow after you. Use us, God, to provoke others. Use us as examples of 
how to handle difficulty as well as blessing. Use us as examples, God, of what it means to be a follower of you and help us to be examples that provoke other people to, to want to see the hope that is in us. Bless us, God, as we go from this place today. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.